Uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, glad you're celebrating your dads today. I'm grateful for every dad who chose this morning uh, to bring their family to church and worship uh, and push the celebration a little bit later in the day. Uh, we've been in this series since Memorial Day that I've called Reimagining How We Relate to God. And I hope for you it's messed with you like it has with me to work through this and begin to think about what kind of a relationship have I built with God and what is it that he most desires, which is what we'll talk about next week. First week in the series, just by way of review, we talked about what it's like to live a life under God. And that particular view uh, takes a look at God and says, honestly, he's this capricious deity who has to be appeased. And we do that through religious rituals and strict obedience to his commands. We do that in order of, so that we can hope that we will uh, be protected from danger and from punishment and will get his blessings. The second posture we looked at was this life over God, which, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, life over God, which imagines God in quite the opposite picture. It paints a picture of God as uh, having established rules and principles that our world is governed by. And he takes a step back like a watchmaker who creates a watch and sets it in motion. Our responsibility here is to figure out what those rules and principles are and believing that a lot of them have uh, very predictable outcomes. Last week we looked at a life for God, which reduces us to a worker bee in God's family. And God's grace and love are then pushed off into a more diminished role in our lives when we live our life for God. What matters most is the great things that we do that we accomplish for God and for the kingdom with our energies and our resources. This morning I want us to talk about a life from God, which completely flips the life for God posture on its ear. Life from God is all about what can God do for me. Some of us even go to the point of saying, what's he done for me lately? All my world, all my possessions, all my relationships, even God himself exists for one sole purpose, and that is to meet my expectations in life. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is at a dinner at a fairly well-to-do religious leader of his day's home. He's at this dinner and he tells several stories in rapid succession. One of them is this one, and it illustrates this self-absorbed life. A man had two sons, Jesus said, and the younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide the wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. And so he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him help. Nobody gave him anything. This self-obsessed son is now penniless. He's taken a job that no Jewish boy should ever do. He is feeding pigs. He has had this meteoric fall from riches to rags. He's gone from being comped martinis at the high rollers table at the Bellagio in Vegas to now he's just cleaning buffet trays at the Nickel Slot Emporium. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, 
You know, the servants at my dad's home have enough food and some to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. So I'll go home to my father. It took a while. It took a while, but he finally came to his senses. And I just wonder, as I think about him, what went through his mind? What thoughts did he wrestle with as he sank to his low, as he was finally broken? I wonder even more what the thoughts were with every step that he took closer and closer to home. Christian Smith is a sociologist at the University of North Carolina, and he has spent the better part of the last two decades digging into and studying the religious lives of Americans. Both Darren and I have talked about his research and uh, what his discoveries have been over the past couple of years. The summary conclusion of his research is that the largest religion in America today is not Christianity. It's not Islam. It's not Buddhism. It's not any of the world's religion as we know them. In fact, the largest religion being practiced in the United States today is one of our culture's own making. We've created it, and he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. There'll be a quiz on this later, so write it down. Now, I just call it MTD for short. What Smith found was that when he asked teenagers and he asked adults to describe their view of God these days, it didn't resemble what we would consider to be traditional Christian faith at all. It didn't reflect the God who was revealed in the Bible. It doesn't even reflect our cultural views and our traditional views of God, or even the views that you would find if you went through rational science to try to understand what God is all about. People who hold to MTD tend to see God as this mixture of divine butler and cosmic therapist. That's his purpose in life. Crassly, he is a holy vending machine who's there to help us through our problems and make sure we're happy. Whatever that takes. MTD is in its essence a great description of this life from God posture. The God is simply there in our lives to supply everything that we could possibly need or want in this life. And before we dismiss this posture too quickly as being completely wrong, there's just enough truth in it that gives us pause. And just like all of these postures, we tend to pull some of that truth in, but we can get caught up in it and lose track of the reality of who God is in our lives. The Bible leaves no room for us to doubt who God is that we are loved deeply by Him. The Bible reminds us throughout that everything we have, even down to the very air that we breathe, is a gift from God out of His love for us. James puts it this way, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. In addition, the Bible teaches that we need to talk to God about what's going on in our lives. Ask for His help. Uh, Ask Tell him our concerns, the things that worry us. And James puts the point very bluntly when he says, look, you don't have in this life because you don't ask God. But the danger in the life from God posture is that it makes that ability to ask God the sole purpose of a relationship with him. It overemphasizes his generosity, his grace in our lives. The focus of our life with God, when we live solely under this posture, the focus of our life becomes asking God for things and getting them 
from him. We become like a toddler who suddenly realizes what Christmas is all about. And it's really all about just getting gifts from people. So they're just anxiously looking for the next one. Here's where it gets really dangerous. You spend any time at all listening to Christian broadcasting, whether it's on the radio or on television or over the Internet, you can begin to see seeds of this that have grown and been pushed to an extreme in our relationship with God. So much so that this teaching carries its own branding that's been assigned not by Christians, but by people on the outside looking in. They call it a prosperity gospel, a health and wealth gospel, a name it and claim it gospel. And it's gotten so popular that Time Magazine actually a couple of years ago ran a cover story entitled it, Does God Want You to Be Rich? They interviewed six prominent uh, evangelists and pastors who taught this theology in various forms. And one of them said, really, who would want to get in on something where you're miserable, poor, broke, and ugly, and you just have to muddle through until you get to heaven? I believe God wants to give us nice things. Okay. I mean, there is a truth in there that God wants to bless us, but how far does that go? I mean, it has some appeal. I mean, if I knew that I could ask God and He'd remove my ugly, that would be my prayer. (laughs) It promises to provide everything that we desire, everything that we want, not what we need in this life, and that God is going to bless everything that we do. It doesn't seem to match up with the life that Jesus lived. It doesn't seem to match up with the life of our Christian heroes through the centuries. In fact, it's an incredibly narcissistic worldview to live solely in a life from God posture. Because you peel back the layers of the cosmos, you try to discover what's at the heart of the universe, and a life from God says, really? You are the center of the universe. And everything orbits around you. The value of relationships and items you have is determined simply by their usefulness to you in life. And if it's no longer useful... Just trade it in. That utilitarian mindset is applied to people when you live this kind of a life. If my friend, if my spouse, if my business partner seats, uh, fails to meet my desires, I am justified in trading that person in just like I would a used car. My problem is I just need an upgrade in my friends. In this posture, even God's value in our life is determined by His usefulness to us. He orbits around us, just like our friends, just like our possessions in this life. It's a one-dimensional relationship. All we're interested in is asking God for things and receiving things from Him, if it's pushed to an extreme. You can build a case for this posture with God if you just pull selected verses out of Scripture, if you make sweeping generalizations about God and the relationship that He wants with us. But if you dig deeply in, you see a different picture. James does say, you don't have because you don't ask. But when you look at the whole passage, you start to see that in a proper context. James writes before and after, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Good question. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. 
You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And you don't have because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Let's take this principle from James. Let's overlay it to the story in Luke 15 that Jesus was telling and see how this all played out in his life. It'll help us see how a life lived solely from God would play out if we lived it. As we read earlier, he was the younger of two sons. The one who asked his father for his inheritance before his father died. That wasn't an unusual request in Jesus' day, by the way. It was a fairly common request. It was just seldom granted by the parents. When it did happen, parents would give the child their inheritance, but they would remain, remain in control of the estate. So the child would get the income off of his portion. The child would get any interest off of that portion. But he wasn't allowed to touch the capital. That remained in control of the parents, and with good reason. As we get older, life gets a little more unpredictable. And the parents needed to make sure that if they needed money in their old age for something that happened, they didn't have to go back to their kids and ask them for it. But it seems in this case, the younger son was given all the capital assets all at once, and he quickly liquidated them and left home. This never happened in families in Jesus' day. And it shocked the listeners when they heard it. Ultimately, the son only wanted what the father could give to him. And once he possessed it, once there was nothing left for his father to give, the relationship was no longer necessary. And so he walked away from home with all of his cash in his pocket. There are hundreds of ways that we can waste a fortune. And this young son's fall was far too predictable Far too quick and far too easy. And when he hit rock bottom, it was devastating. Hard times hit. Money ran out. The economy crashed. And then there was a food shortage in the land. And this pampered kid from a wealthy Jewish family took the only job he could find feeding pigs. Eventually, his hunger got so acute that he wanted to eat the slop that he was feeding to pigs. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever slopped a pig. Anybody? Yeah? Okay. You know what? You are far more spiritual than first service. That's all I'm going to say. There was only one in first service. There's four or five here. When I was in fourth grade, we moved onto a farm and took on some of the hogs that were on that farm and raised them. It became my job and my brother's job. I was 10 years old to slop the pigs. So you can appreciate this story better. I'm going to tell you what that involves. So... We had in our kitchen, we had a five-gallon bucket. Yeah, you're already ahead of me. And we had a big family. There were six of us in the family. And so after every meal, there was no garbage disposal. That was our pigs. We would scrape all the excess food off into a bucket, cover it, just let it sit. Every couple of days, when the food was really nice and rancid, and it just needed to be gotten rid of, we'd take it out, and we would take it over to the barn, carry this bucket over, we put some, some grain in it, and then we put some water in it, so we make this wonderful soup. And the hogs loved it. You know, I mean, you literally had to fight them off as you walked into the lot and they saw the bucket. They would fight you to get to the trough, and you'd pour it into the trough, and it was the most disgusting thing I have ever 
smelled or seen in my life. I wanted to barf every time I slapped the hogs. The only reason I didn't is because they might have thought it improved the recipe, and they'd come to expect it every time. Thanks, Eric, for throwing that picture up there. Um, So here's the point. This young son has come to rock bottom. He is at the place where he is willing to pick recognizable chunks of food out of the hog trough and eat them. He's at bottom. He comes to his senses. And he creates a new plan. He's going to go home and and apologize to his father. He realizes he's forfeited any rights he had. Because he wasted his inheritance. The only thing left for him is to ask his father for a job as one of his servants. And that would be far better than the life he's fallen into. This greedy younger son illustrates the core characteristics of a life that is solely from God. The world revolved around him, around his wishes, his needs, whatever gave him pleasure. What's also interesting in the story, though, is that the older brother models for us a life lived solely for God. We talked about that last week. He never left home. He didn't ask his dad for his inheritance before he died. And one day, he's working hard for his father. He comes in from the fields and he hears this celebration spirit around the house. And he pulls one of the servants aside and says, what's going on? He goes, oh oh my gosh, your brother has finally come home. Now you would think that's good news. But listen to the protest that this son makes to his father. He says, all these years I've slaved for you. And never wants to refuse to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never even gave me a scrawny little goat to throw a party for my friends. Yet when this son of yours, I love his language, this son of yours comes home after squandering all of his money on prostitutes, that's a lot of conjecture on his part, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. I've been working hard for you for all these years. I've never failed you once. I've held up my end of this bargain. I've done all this work. And this is the thanks I get? That storm had been brewing inside of him for a while, it sounds like. It's really important to recognize in the story that Jesus doesn't praise either son as he tells the story. The purpose of the story for Jesus was to show how both sons had missed the beautiful relationship with the father It was available to them. Both sons were keenly focused on their father's finances. The younger son simply took what was owed him, what he desired, while the older son was more patient, and he stayed home and he worked for it. He was self-disciplined. Their methods were as different as night and day, but they were both jerks. It just happened that the older brother was a more socially acceptable jerk than the younger. Jesus told this story at the home of a Pharisee, surrounded by Pharisees. Obedience had filled this older son just like it had filled the Pharisees with a sense of self-righteousness. He was smug. He was arrogant. And he eventually became bitter and resentful and angry at others he deemed less valuable, including his brother. 
But Jesus did not diminish the older son's obedience in the same way that he didn't glorify the younger son's disobedience. He was just showing his listeners how a life for God and a life from God fail to capture what God really wants in a relationship with us. Some of us in the room can identify strongly with the younger son. We tend to build our identities around our security and what we've received from God and the good things in our life. Others of us, I tend to be one of these, tend to behave more like the older son. We find our value in the things we can accomplish for God. And in fact, there are churches and faiths all over our country that spend a lot of time and a lot of energy in simply trying to change people from the younger son to the older son. And all that effort is, misses the point entirely. I think some of that's because of the label that the translators put in our Bible when they call this story the story of the prodigal son. It incorrectly draws all the focus on the younger brother. I think that title misses the point entirely. The word prodigal literally means lavish, recklessly extravagant. And while he did live his life that way, it really isn't about him. It's not about the son who left home. It's not about the son who stayed home. This story in the final analysis, I believe, is all about the father and his recklessly extravagant love for his children. In his love, the father gave his sons the space to be themselves. They grew up in the same home. They had the same parents, the same experiences, but they were polar opposites. They had their own quirks, they had their own personalities, and the father loved both of his sons deeply for who they were. In his love, the father allowed both of these sons to make their own decisions. It's hard to do as a parent. It was hard for him, even when he disagreed, even when he knew that if they chose this path, there could be some serious consequences for it. Well, this loving father knew the only way to learn to make, the, to know the difference between a good decision and a bad decision is to actually make some decisions. And in the final analysis, the father's love was strong enough that he could forgive and love extravagantly both of his sons. The younger son makes his trip back and his father sees him from a long way off. I like to picture him like looking down the road that leads up to the property every day wondering, when will he come home? When will he come home? When the father sees him, he does something very dignified in that culture for an older man to do. He ran to his son. And the son barely gets out the first sentence of his apology before the dad cuts him off and motions to the house and says, hey, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger which symbolized the authority of the father and put sandals on his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We have to celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and he's now returned to life. He was lost, but he's been found. While the party was going on, even after he knew what it was about, the older son stayed in the yard. He pouted. He refused to join in. And rather than let him stay out there and simmer, 
father loved him enough to go to him and speak lovingly to him in spite of the rage that he was spewing at his younger brother and his father. It says to the younger son, look son, or the older son, he's, you've always stayed by me. Everything that I have is already yours. But we had to celebrate this happy day because your brother was dead and he's come back to life. He was lost and now he's found. If the word prodigal describes anyone in this story, it describes the father. And it gives us this beautiful image of God's love for us. Jesus tells the story because he wants us to understand that the prodigal father loves his kids with a reckless extravagance. It's not a love we deserve. And it's certainly not a love we've ever earned. I believe Jesus tells this story because he wants us to understand that even in the worst of our sin, we can't stop God from loving us. And that the greatest longing of God's heart is that we will simply stop running. Stop working so hard to earn his love finally come to our senses and simply come home.